to not want sex when you're in a bad relationship is not that interesting. But to not want sex when you're in a supposedly good relationship, what is that about? Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. When Masters and Johnson documented the human sexual response cycle in the 1960s, there were orgasms aplenty. And while these researchers certainly made a valuable contribution to our understanding of what happens inside the body during sexual activity, there was something missing from their final product, desire. Masters and Johnson wanted to study sex as objectively as possible, but desire is inherently subjective and not so easily observed outside of self-reports. So that's probably why they didn't really bother to address it. But understanding desire is crucial if we want to understand human sexuality in all of its wonderful complexity. So we're going to be talking all about sexual desire today, and particularly women's sexual desire, because the single most common complaint among women seeking sex therapy is low desire. It turns out that desire is a pretty complicated subject, and even scientists don't necessarily agree on the definition, including whether and how it is distinct from sexual arousal. So we're going to give you a crash course in all things desire, including how to treat problems with desire, why monogamy is so hard on desire and what we can do about that, as well as why wanting to be wanted is so crucial to feeling desire. I am joined by Dr. Marta Miana, a professor of psychology at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, who previously served as its president and dean of the Honors College. She is the author of numerous academic publications and two books. Her research has focused on genital pain in women as well as female sexual desire. Marta is also currently an associate editor of the Journal of Sex Research. This is going to be an amazing conversation. So stick around and we're going to jump in right after the break. Get fit and stay firm with FirmTech. Their performance ring is designed to boost your sexual stamina and give you harder, longer-lasting erections while also enhancing pleasure for both the wearer and their partner. Their tech ring has the added benefit of tracking your erectile health when synced with FirmTech's free mobile app, which monitors changes in erection duration, hardness, and more. Take control of your sexual health while increasing sexual performance and satisfaction at the same time. To learn more, check the show notes or visit myfirmtech.com and be sure to use my exclusive discount code, Justin20, to save 20% off your purchase. Again, that's myfirmtech.com. Hi, Marta, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hi, Justin. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure to speak with you as well. So I know that you've served in many roles in the world of academics over the last couple of decades, and this includes work as both a clinician and a researcher working in the area of human sexuality. So how did you get interested in studying the science of sex in the first place? What is it that drew you to this area? Yeah, uh, you know, quite accidentally, to be uh, honest with you, when I was uh, starting uh, my graduate work, it was uh, during the HIV crisis, and I actually wanted to do work in psychoneuroimmunology, but uh, nobody wanted to do that work with me where I was. And so I uh, shifted and uh, started becoming interested in the topic of sexual pain in women. 
I was working at a clinic where I was seeing these women who presented with excruciating pain during intercourse. And yet, you know, to me, they felt pretty psychologically well adjusted other than the fact that they had this pain syndrome. And so my dissertation research and a bunch of other research that that it spawned showed us, ironically, it took a psychologist to show that most of those cases were really an organic problem that, of course, women had distress around. In the past, we had treated women with uh, sexual pain as if uh, it was a psychological problem, that it was in their head. I'm happy to say that the research that I started and then was elaborated by many, many other researchers finally got women the proper treatment for a disorder that was very disruptive to their individual lives and, and their relationships. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for the very important work that you do. Now, most of your research has focused on sexual desire in recent years, particularly in the context of how cisgender heterosexual women experience it. So let's talk about desire. As a starting point, I always like to talk about definitions. And to a lot of people, the concept of desire seems like it should probably be pretty straightforward, but there actually isn't a lot of agreement in the field about the definition. So for example, some people define desire as the sum of all the forces that push us toward or away from sexual behavior. Others define it as a wish to attain a sexual goal. And yet others have defined desire as the awareness of sexual arousal, which I kind of like because that resonates with my own personal experience. So for me, arousal usually precedes desire. So there's this recognition that my body's experiencing some degree of physical arousal. And then I'm like, yeah, I might be down for something. But anyway, as someone who studies sexual desire, how do you conceptualize it? You know, The way I conceptualize it is I don't talk about desire, I talk about desires. Because that list that you just gave, they're all desire. They're all a kind of desire that either end up in sexual activity or in fantasy or in connection with another human being. So I don't waste my time trying to find one definition of desire because one of the things that my work with women, both clinically and in terms of the research has taught me, is that there isn't one kind of desire. We defined desire early on, a la Masters and Johnson, in a very appetitive way, as if it was like hunger, you know? You know when you're hungry and you want to eat. And from the get-go, I realized that that definition of desire was not really consistent with women's experiences, not my own, and not a lot of women. However, for some women, it is. So I like to think about desire in a multidimensional kind of way, and everyone experiences it in a different way, is motivated by different aspects of sexual connection. So that's how I get out of the conundrum. I speak about women's desires. Well, I like that answer. So there are different ways to think about this. And it's not necessarily the case that one is more right or correct than any of the others because desire is this kind of amorphous thing. And it can mean somewhat different things to different people in terms of how it's experienced. In preparing for our conversation, I was thinking about the role of desire in the various sexual response models that have been proposed over the years. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, It wasn't really part of the Masters and Johnson sexual response cycle, 
But then you had other people who came along, like Helen Singer Kaplan, who argued that, you know, there has to be something that precedes arousal. And so desire became a crucial part of her model that you have to have desire first and then arousal and everything else flows from that. But that model is problematic in the sense that not everybody has that desire that precedes arousal. So I think there have been a lot of shifts over time in the field in terms of how we think about desire and where its place is in the sexual response cycle. And it seems kind of problematic to think that sex and sexual response just always follows this predictable, linear, sequential pattern in everybody. There seems to be a lot of variability. But I think that raises the interesting question of, well, if people have different definitions of desire and we don't necessarily agree on sort of where it goes in this model, then how do we treat a problem like low sexual desire when somebody shows up in a clinic for treatment? Right. And if desire and arousal are kind of like intimately interconnected, can you treat one without treating the other? So I'm just curious to hear some of your thoughts on sexual desire in terms of how we treat it in light of this fact that desire is this very broad, amorphous concept. Right. Great question. Complicated one, complicated answer, because it is dependent on every individual case. So, for example, if a woman comes in with low desire, And when you start doing a comprehensive assessment, you realize that she has incompetent sexual stimuli. Well, does she really have low desire or does she just not want something that isn't a lot of fun, right? What you have to do is do a comprehensive assessment to find out the potential reasons why desire is not being felt. And it's a really interesting question with women because my work with women showed me that while the appetitive kind of concept of desire, that it's like hunger or thirst, just did not seem to fit very well with a lot of women's experiences. I think the literature kind of overcorrected and uh, decided that, oh, what we have to care about is women's relationships. And that's where their desire lies. And if the relationship is going well, then, then they are going to experience that desire. And I don't think that's true either. I certainly knew it wasn't true as I was treating women clinically, but I decided to do uh, this little study. We, we interviewed 19 women. We recruited for women who were happily married but had no or very low sexual desire for sex with their husbands who they claim to be very happily married to. Because it's, you know, to not want sex when you're in a bad relationship is not that interesting. But to not want sex when you're in a supposedly good relationship, what is that about? And what was so interesting about that study is that you realize that a lot of those relational tropes, those men are from Mars, women are from Venus, so did not pan out. Because what the women complained about was over-familiarity, which is a relationship thing, right? Oh my God, I have a great relationship. I feel secure. He loves me. I love him, but I couldn't care less if I ever had sex again, right? So it shows you that it's not just about relationships. Women talked about desexualized roles, that, you know, when they became moms, they kind of lost that sexual relationship to themselves. But What it made you realize talking to these women is that 
they valued novelty and excitement and all of those things we kind of associate more with male sexuality as much as men did. And they weren't getting that in their relationships. And so they didn't have desire. Now, if I had put one of those women with someone who was new and attractive, and would their desire have suddenly sprung back? In most cases, I would say yes, and they would say yes right? So what was interesting about that study is that just being in a really good relationship is not enough. And yet we have had that tendency to think that that's what women need to be sexually satisfied. It's what women choose sometimes over being sexually satisfied, but it's not necessarily what is exciting sexually. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing all of that. And I think that this further highlights the complexity of desire and especially the treatment of low desire, because there are so many people who wish that there was just a pill that they could take that's instantaneously going to create desire. And I think as you're talking about this and how desire is contingent on a lot of different things and you have to do this multifactorial assessment of it. It's probably unrealistic to think that at some point we would have a pill you could just take that's going to fix the situation and lead to desire for anybody in any situation because it's going to have different factors that are causing low desire in different contexts and different situations. That's right. Now, I interviewed author Wednesday Martin a while back about her book, Untrue. And this was for an article I wrote for Vice. And she quoted you as saying that long-term relationships are particularly hard on female desire. And social scientists have long argued that monogamy is easier for women because men are more wired to roam. But in long-term relationships, women tend to lose desire for sex faster than men do, suggesting that this idea that monogamy comes more naturally to women argument is wrong. Yes, long-term relationships are tough on everybody's sexual desire. But you're absolutely right. The literature shows, the research shows that they're even tougher on female sexual desire. You know, there's a big controversy about whether men have a higher sex drive than women. Most of the literature would suggest that they do. But of course, it's always so hard when you live in a society that stigmatizes female sexuality to know whether that's some biological fact or some socially constructed one. But I will, at the risk of being a little controversial, say that in my reading of the literature and my clinical experience, it has been true to my experience that the male drive has been a little hardier in this regard. But what that means is that the sex has to be better for women to remain interested. So, you know, if you're starting with different levels of like that appetitive drive, then what it means is that as long-term relationships do their kind of dampening thing to both men and women, it is now going to take a little bit better sex to make the women be as interested as they were at the beginning. So I do believe that it is harder on women. But what I think people have gotten wrong is even if the appetitive drive isn't as hardy, what that predicts is that the sex has to be better for it to be arousing, right? So if you're not very hungry, you may still be tempted by a chocolate cake, right? Uh, Because it's so great. But it's going to take something 
special to get you there because you're not that hungry. Something like that may be going on here. So in fact, those are the elements of excitement and novelty and competent stimuli that become even more important to women, actually, than to men in order to maintain their sexual desire in a long-term relationship. I think that makes total sense. The reason people have gotten that wrong is because women often privilege relationships over sex. And so because they choose relationships, then people think relationships is what turn women on. And my argument would be, no, actually not at all. They just have made a choice to privilege one thing over another. And maybe in some cases, men make that choice a little less often. Yeah, that all makes total sense to me. And It feeds into my next question nicely, because another quote that I've seen attributed to you is that being desired is the orgasm, which comes from the book, What Do Women Want? And the idea is that, you know, at the core of desire, particularly for women, is this wanting to be wanted. And in the early stages of a relationship, when you're in the throes of passion, it's usually pretty easy to get this. But it becomes harder as that intense passion starts to fade because people start to make those choices you were just talking about to sort of follow this script for what a good relationship should be, where they merge with their partner, they become incredibly close, they have this deep bond, they become everything to one another. And while this idea that your partner is your best friend and your everything sounds really romantic, it doesn't do a great job of setting the stage for long-term lust, right? You become so close that you lose that intense primal need for the other. So our relationship choices can be at odds with what turns us on. So the question then becomes, how can we manage this better? And is it even possible to have it all? You know, can you have intense intimacy and passion at the same time and maintain it long term? I don't think we can have it all, all the time. But I think if we work at it, we can recapture it occasionally, even if we've been together for 20 or 30 years. But no, I'm not somebody who is going to say, oh, just come and work with me clinically and I will have you guys feeling about each other the way you did when you first met. But can you have those moments again? See, the problem with monogamy is that you stop believing in your partner's desire because you know darn well they're stuck. So that is why I think we can all relate to this. It is so exciting to be wanted and desired by a stranger, by someone who you're not in a relationship with, because now you know that that's real. It may not mean anything. It may not go anywhere, but that's real because that person doesn't have to pick you. Your monogamous partner does. That's the contract that you guys signed. And the problem with that for women is they stop believing in the desire because they know that their partner can't go anywhere else. That's the contract they entered into. And they don't want them to go anywhere else. But then it becomes, okay, he wants to have sex. But it's not no longer really about me because he has no choice, right? That's another way in which long-term relationships can be hard on desire and why it is important for people to get out there in the world. And even if they have no intent of having sex with another partner, to feel the world being attracted to them 
is still very important. And many of us have had that situation where that's actually been exciting. And that night when you're with your partner, uh, you feel much more desirous, but that is because you felt desired in a credible way. And I think everything you're talking about here is part of the reason why so many people are drawn to consensual non-monogamy. It's because you can still have that safety and security and intense bond with one partner, but you can still get that intense attraction with other partners. And you have that introduction of novelty that can come back over and over and reawaken those feelings of intense passion uh, at different points in time with different partners. And that can spill over and have these effects on your relationships with other people. Absolutely. When we talk about consensual non-monogamy and open relationships, there are different ways to do this. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to go out and have sex with other people, but some people might just decide, well, we want to be monogamous, but we're going to open up to the extent that we're allowed to flirt with other people. And, you know, that can be exciting. It can provide you with that validation, that sense that you are desired. And for some people, that's enough to increase the passion in their relationship because they're sort of getting that need to be wanted from other sources. So when we're talking about open relationships, consensual non-monogamy, these can look like different things to different people. And if you decide to pursue that path, it's ultimately about finding an agreement that you and your partner are comfortable with. Absolutely. And the only problem I've seen with consensual non-monogamy is when one partner has talked another partner into it who doesn't want to lose their partner, but not quite sure. And it can get very complicated in those cases. But if you both walk into it willingly and thinking that this is going to be good for you individually and as a couple, it can work marvelously. But you need both people to be on the same page. Absolutely. I think that's such an important point that different relationship styles work for different people, but you have to be on the same page with your expectations. And no matter what style of relationship you have, it requires a heck of a lot of communication. Now, since we're on the subject of wanting to be wanted, you know, this is something that I've seen a lot in my research on sexual fantasies, and it's one of the bigger gender differences. You know, certainly wanting to be wanted is something that a lot of men experience as well. And even if they don't directly come out and say it, I can read between the lines when they describe their fantasies, you know, such as I have a lot of heterosexual men in my studies who will describe their threesome fantasy with two other women where he's the center of attention and is sexually irresistible. I mean, fundamentally, that fantasy is about wanting to be wanted. But a key way that men's and women's fantasies differ is in their erotic self-focus. And in their fantasies, women are much more likely than men to appear as the object of desire. And the identity of their partner sometimes doesn't matter at all. So, for example, women, regardless of sexual orientation, in my research, I see they're much more likely than men to report having fantasized about a vague, faceless person. So sometimes women are so central to their own fantasies that it's not even clear in the fantasy who it is that they're having sex with. <laughs> so what have you found with respect to self-focus being a core part of sexual fantasy and desire for women? Well, I think sexual fantasy is only part of that story. I've still got a lot of data on the table that I haven't gotten out there to the world. But let me tell you how, how I came to this topic of erotic self-focus in women. One of the things that I realized in my clinical work dealing with women with low desire, most of whom were in perfectly reasonable relationships with men they felt reasonably attracted to, 
was that I had to work on their sexual relationship with themselves. I started to realize clinically that my success in upping their desire was much higher when I worked on them and their sexual relationship to themselves. I'll tell you a funny story. So a few years ago, before I started my research on erotic self-focus, I came up with this question that I thought might be important, although it sounds silly. And I asked all my friends and acquaintances this question. I said, would you sleep with yourself? And all I wanted was a yes or no. Just would you sleep with yourself? Would you have sex with yourself, essentially? And there was an interesting anecdotal gender difference that I found. Many of the men said, oh, I don't know, what do you mean by that? You know, the women knew exactly what I meant by that and either said yes or no, but mostly said yes. And so when my grad student, Evan Fertel, and I were having these discussions, I, that's where we said, let's try to get at this erotic self-focus. I don't know if you recall a while back, the very controversial theory of autogynephilia in relation to trans women. Uh, well, Charles Moser wanted to show that this concept of autogynephilia, which is getting turned on by yourself as a woman, the concept of yourself as a woman, was in fact maybe something that cisgender heterosexual women also experience. And he did, it was a very small study and found support for cisgender heterosexual women reporting that they they were turned on when they put lotion on themselves or when they were grooming for in advance of a date. And so we decided to really delve into that question, not just in terms of fantasy, but in terms of how much you turn yourself on over and above. And I'm not talking about masturbation. Like a simple question, if you are having sex with your partner in front of a mirror, who do you think you're looking most at? That's an example of, you know, just a question. So we came up with a list of questions that we thought reasonably tapped into the extent to which your arousal has to do with how you feel about yourself and your own sexiness. And what we found, we did two studies, the master's one that women rated much higher on erotic self-focus than men did. Again, I really want to stress cisgender heterosexual women. But we also wanted to see if our theory made sense to people. So we had like a construct endorsement question where I would say this to men and to women. So more so than heterosexual men, heterosexual women derive sexual arousal from feeling that they are sexy, that their bodies are arousing, and from imagining themselves sexually. Although an attractive desires male partner is very important to their arousal, they also turn themselves on by focusing on their own sexiness during sexual encounters and even outside of sex. To what extent do you agree with women being their own objects of desire and finding themselves arousing? And what was super interesting was that both men and women endorsed this much more of women than they did of men, because I asked the same question about men, except women thought that men had more erotic self-focus than they were willing to admit to. And, you know, with all of this research, you always have to be a little worried with the cisgender heterosexual men that, you know, you don't have a little homoerotic anxiety creeping in and that they don't want to say that they would sleep with themselves because that might indicate something they don't want to indicate. So 
we found a very big gender difference in erotic self-focus. Then when we did the bigger study, because we were a little worried that maybe the original questionnaire was a little feminized. It talked about lotions and things. And I thought, you know, maybe we're pulling for that gender difference. And so we redesigned the entire questionnaire, made it a lot longer, did a factor analysis, so on and so forth. And the same thing came out very large differences. And interestingly and importantly, erotic self-focus was associated with higher sexual function in every dimension of women's sexuality, although not so much for men. And so it kind of has confirmed what I've felt clinically all along. And I do think it's, it's true of men and women. We may have a difference here. And it's interesting to talk about why would women have more arousal that emanates from themselves than men. But before I I get to that, think about that Shania Twain song. Man, I feel like a woman, right? And you go like, why is she saying that? Of course she feels like a woman. She is a woman. That's not what she's saying. She's saying it's turning her on to be a woman, right? If you actually go into the popular songs you're going to find a lot of that, a lot of it. I think it's a thing. I would like to do more research on it, but I definitely think it's a thing. Now, why would women be more erotically self-focused? So I am a very biopsychosocial researcher and clinician, and so I always consider both social construction and a potential biological socioevolutionary explanation. So, you know, the social construction one could be that women have been treated as sexual objects for so long that they almost couldn't help but develop that relationship to themselves. But that in a world where they weren't just treated as sexual objects, it wouldn't happen. We don't know that. But that would be the the kind of social construction. Or it's adaptive. Or if focusing on yourself and your sexiness is going to enhance your mate selection, maybe that's at play also. So those are two things to think about and hopefully one day try to sort out with the research. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing all of that. And I had so many thoughts as you were speaking. And, you know, one of the first ones was about men and their erotic self-focus and how much for cisgender heterosexual men is the absence of that just due to that they perceive it as being gay or something like that. And they've got some internal conflict that would say, no, I, I wouldn't want to admit to that, even if I did have that fantasy because, you know, it would affect how other people would perceive me. Right. So I do wonder if it's being underreported for that reason. I do too. And I also wonder if there might be a difference based on sexual orientation. So if you looked at men who are LGBTQ versus cisgender heterosexual men, you might see a difference. Actually, I do have some data from my fantasy research where I could kind of look at this because I did ask people about, have you ever fantasized about having sex with yourself? So I think after this recording, I'm going to have to sit there and dive into the data and see if there is a difference because I suspect that there probably is and that if you're LGBTQ, you're probably more likely than cisgender heterosexual men to have had that fantasy about yourself or to have more of that erotic self-focus. 
I agree. And, and anecdotally, so I was on Oprah, you know, in 2008, talking about this stuff, not so much about erotic self-focus, although it's the desire to be desired is very closely related to it. And I got thousands of emails of people saying, absolutely, that is me. You just described my experience. It's the whole desire part that's super exciting. The end, yeah, okay, all right. But I could stop before then and be happy. And with very few exceptions of those thousands, and I'm, I'm not exaggerating of emails, there were women and gay men. Yep. <laughs> and I wasn't talking about gay men because I hadn't done any research on gay men. So I, I think you're absolutely right. And maybe, you know, it's time to take this imperfect questionnaire, but that is getting at something and see if what it looks like when we look at different sexual orientations and identities. I've always been concerned that the homoerotic anxiety thing was, was depressing the erotic self-focus. And to support that, as I said to you, when we asked the construct endorsement question, when we asked women and men to what extent they thought men and women uh, were erotically self-focused, women said that men were more erotically self-focused than men said. So that supports the very thing you're saying. Yeah. So many interesting questions, and we'll really have to do a deeper dive into the data and conduct some additional studies to find this out. But I'm thinking, too, that there might also be a gender difference that plays into this in terms of the perspective that people take in their sexual fantasies. And this is one of the things I neglected to ask about on my research is, do you have your fantasies from a first-person perspective where you're seeing through your own eyes? Or is it from a third-person perspective where it's like you're watching a movie and you're a character in it? Because it would seem to me that from that third-person perspective, you'd be much more likely to see yourself as the object of desire. And so I wonder if there's a gender difference or and also maybe even a sexual orientation difference there in terms of that perspective we take in our fantasies. I agree. But I would add a third option, which my clients have said, that they switch back and forth within the fantasy right? So that you're not always the object of desire, you're not always the initiator of the interaction, you switch back and forth, which is fascinating. But I really can say from my clinical work that if you can get men or women, men and women, to get closer to saying yes to the would you want to sleep with yourself, you're going to have an impact on their sexual function. I certainly think that you would. And it, it, this all makes total sense to me. Um, and it's got me thinking about myself. <laughs> um, you, know, I, <laughs> you know, I can relate to everything we're discussing here because, you know, I, I have wondered, oh, what would it be like to have sex with myself? And, you know, for a while I thought that that was weird. Like, who does that? And <laughs> turns out a lot of people do. Uh, so I'm not worried about that anymore. A lot of people do. <laughs> and when you ask that question of, you know, if there's a mirror, who is it you're going to be looking at? And, you know, I'm thinking to myself, me, you know, but yeah. yeah so I think that erotic self-focus is definitely a, a pervasive part of our sexuality and how we relate to our own sexuality just in general. And, you know, I was going to ask a question about this because anytime I talk about erotic self-focus stuff, people have a tendency to go in a negative direction with it where they say, well, that's narcissism. And, you know, they, I think, make this attribution that it says something negative about you. But I think based on your research, what you're saying that the way to think about it 
is that maybe this is a healthy aspect of sexuality because it suggests that you feel really good about yourself and confident in your body and your sexuality. Well, I got in a whole lot of trouble years ago using the word narcissism, which I used not in its malignant form, but we all need a healthy amount of narcissism to function well in society. But I shouldn't have used that word because everybody went to negative with it and thought I was saying that women were, were narcissistic. And so now I use the word autonomy. Now I say that female sexual desire is more autonomous than you think it is. I think that captures it better because people just go to a negative place with the word narcissism, which, you know, I was using in the way Freud might have in that you need some of it, (laughs) you know? So the fact that we have that there's part of our sexuality that is somewhat autonomous from another person seems to me like a great thing. And I would agree (laughs) with that. (laughs) Now, I know we're running short on time, but I have one more question for you, which is about forced sex fantasies, also known as consensual non-consent fantasies, or sometimes as rape fantasies, which is a term I don't particularly like for them, but that's how some people know them. But anyway, research, including my own, shows that this is a common fantasy theme, especially among women. And I think it fits really well with what we've been talking about here with this wanting to be wanted and this erotic self-focus, because in these fantasies, you're being ravished by someone who has this primal attraction to you that they can't control. And with any given fantasy, the psychology behind it is complex. Different people might be drawn to the same thing for very different reasons. But it seems to me that this wanting to be wanted is really a core piece of this fantasy for a lot of people. So I'm curious to hear what you think in terms of how you see the psychology behind these forced sex fantasies. So like you, I hate the term rape fantasy because the only rape fantasy is to not be raped, right? But these, what I prefer to call submission fantasies, are all about wanting to be desired. And what more, and this is where things get really complicated when the politics of this, but what better proof of your desirability than someone breaking with convention to get to you, right? Again, it's a fantasy. But even in real life and not fantasy, I'm obviously delighted that we're all talking about consent and that we're all talking about making sure that women and men don't have sexual experiences they don't want to. However, when everybody gets real and starts talking about sexy moments, not everything you do sexually is preceded by a question. Like, would you mind if I kissed you now? Right? And most people who I talk to would say, just kiss me. I, w- I just wanted if they kissed me. Right? So yes, these fantasies are totally about, you know, the thrill of being desired that someone is actually going to go out of their way, do something extraordinary to be with you. So I do think that these things have become hard to talk about without people going to a negative place. But, you know, sexuality is a complex landscape and it doesn't uh, mix really well with strict morality rules. And I hope we can start to feel a little more comfortable in allowing sexuality to have those transgressions as part of the mix uh, without us interpreting everything as potentially coercive. 
Yeah, I totally understand what you're saying. And, you know, I often like to say that our sexual desires are not always politically correct, right? And right. the things that turn us on and what we want to do in the bedroom might be very different from what we say about sex in a public setting or forum. And so, right. you know, it, it's another case where we're kind of at odds with ourselves about what we say and do versus what we actually want. And, you know, if, if you want to support a model of affirmative consent where you're stopping at each stage and checking in, for some people that can work, but for a lot of other people, it just feels inherently unsexy and they want a partner who's going to go for it. Or maybe you do all the negotiation in advance before sex happens. So it can be this you know, right. more fluid, dynamic situation. So I think with consent, we're still figuring out what the best model is and how to make consent sexy. Consent can be very sexy. Yes. We just need to find better models of how to do it. Yes. And approach the topic with an openness that sexuality is kind of wild and, and untamable in some ways. As you say, you know, you can have all this, all these thoughts in your head about what's right or wrong, and then you're fantasizing about all sorts of stuff that you're, you would never, ever in a million years ever want to do, you know? So again, I think all of the, the move toward affirmative consent is absolutely positive, but I hope we don't overcorrect and constrict our sexual interactions to the point where we're more self-conscious than in a state of pleasure. Yep, totally agree. Well, thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Marta. It was a pleasure to have you here. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.